0: So I brought up The Ghost in the Martini, which is a, an old Anthony Hecht poem. Did you, Had you known this poem at all?
1: No, I only know Hecht because of you. Okay. Um, I read A Hill because you mentioned it in that essay about Ryan, and I really, mm. really thought that was beautiful. Yeah. This poem, I hate. I fucking hate this poem. It's so bad. I can barely get through it. And I don't like... What is up with Anthony Heck? Do we like him? Do Am I like meant to like him?
0: <laughs> he's he's great. I mean, I think he's a really, really extraordinary poet. He's great. He's written a whole lot. I mean, uh, Eliot has the line somewhere about like major poets. In order to be a major poet, you have to have, you have to have a certain breadth and depth to your output. Yeah. The Ghost in the Martini, yes. I think it's a long poem. I don't know that I want to read the whole thing, but I feel like I want to give people some sense of it. Uh, I, I can't imagine you want to read any of it.
1: <laughs> no, thanks. No. That's fine. <laughs> yeah.
0: I'll, I'll read a few stanzas. So, uh, over the rim of the glass, containing a good martini with a twist, I eye, her, I eye her bosom and consider a pass, certain we'd not be missed in the general hubbub. Her lips, which I forgot to say are superb, never stop babbling once. Aye, there's the rub. But who would want to curb such delicious, artful flattery? It seems she adores my work, the distinguished gray of my hair. I muse on the salt and battery of the sexual clinch and say something terse and gruff about the marked disparity in our ages.
1: If I wasn't already not on board by the time we get to salt and battery, I'm like, okay.
0: And then about halfway through the poem, or maybe not quite halfway through the poem, the his martini starts uh, shouting at him, and and you know uh, he calls him an old lech and, and insults him, but is also speaking from this like very peculiar perspective to say it fails to treat the young woman as a person is probably an understatement. <laughs> uh, I, I do think there's, I think like there is the girl is stage dressing when he writes the poem. Now she's all we can see. I think there is sort of an interesting thing happening in that his sort of psychic self analysis. It's just that it totally gets drowned out by how shitty he's being to this woman.
1: Yeah. It sounds like it's written by an incel. <laughs> and just to be really clear, like I'm not against this poem because of The perspective it's taking or the subject matter Or even really the thing that I hate about it most Isn't the way that it portrays and treats the female character I just hate the rhyme And I hate the way it's written (laughs) I hate the choice of language It's so clunky The end of every line is just this really tortured choice of word I'm trying to find my favourite one here (laughs) In the voice of the lemon twist in the martini, he rhymes with all mm-hmm. with tall and then yep. interrupt with untopped, which is a word I've never heard. And when I looked it up, it doesn't exist mm-hmm. as far as I can tell.
0: No, but topped um, does, and it's not a it's not a nice word to have invented.
1: <laughs> it's the kind of poem that I can imagine my friends who are just trying to get into poetry would look at and go oh, see, this is why I don't like poetry. This is why I don't like rhyming poetry. Yeah.
0: So Heck, in addition to his other poetic achievements, he also, he invented, I think along with John Hollander, the double dactyl, which is a, is extre- it's this tiny little joke poem fo- poetic form that has very demanding metrical and content requirements. And it's, the result is nonsense. And he loved this. And he was a mo. He had a moat. Like, if Richard Wilbur likes writing dumb, cute animal riddles, Anthony Hecht liked writing these these are g- goofy. They're not even like dad jokes. They're like horny uncle jokes. They're just sort of like <laughs> gross. And he, like, he, that was his real weakness. And so this is a poem, I will say, where you, it becomes harder to, to make a distinction between his his serious mode and his, his light verse. Uh, but yeah, it, I think at the time, it, Reading it in grad school, it seemed just like and I think was received generally in the class as like as witty self-deprecation. And it's not that it doesn't have witty self-deprecation in it, but I think like like I'll say there are there are people who hate meter and rhyme unjustly. but there also is there is some poetry that I can enjoy and certain other formal nerds can enjoy. That, like, I understand why people hate it. <laughs> like it, you know, it's like there's stuff that is it's so insidery and dorky that if you're really into that stuff, you can like it. You know, I I won't I won't wholeheartedly defend this poem, but there's a certain type of like goofy formal play. Like I would say, like John Hollander's Brian's Reason to like, I get it if reading that book makes you want to set it on fire. Like, I I can't I can't really hold it against you. <laughs> I'm Matthew Buckley-Smith, and you're listening to Slee Ricketts. Thank you, as always, for listening, and thank you especially to those of you who've had a chance to recommend the show to somebody you think might enjoy it. I hope you did not do so in vain. We we just got a brand new tiny uh, puppy, so I'm recording with her in my lap right now, so if you hear any pitiful whimpers or tiny adorable puppy growls, that. Is where they are coming from. She's very cute, but still learning how to don't eat the book, don't do well, no, don't no bite, don't do that. Yeah, so that's that's that. When when I was a kid, my granddad, so he had some advice for me. He was not a big reader of fiction but he, he was a, a, a successful businessman. And so he, he would always say, well, if you want to write books, just be sure to fill them with lots of sex because that's what sells. And it wasn't until uh, I'd um, already done a fair amount of writing some years after his death that I, I mentioned this advice to my dad in sort of justifying some of the content of some of the things I'd written. And my dad's response was, oh no, but but he meant good sex. He he meant fill them with fill, fill them with the kind of sex that people actually would want to have. Because I I had uh, witlessly been been writing uh, lots of scenes and poems and stories about horrible, nasty sex that nobody would want to have. Uh, so that's what I've got for you today. I've got some some bad, horrible sex, and and not even not even sex, just just bad bad, horrible sexual behavior. I'm uh, with me uh, again is is Alice Allen of the Poetry Says podcast. She's on Twitter at, at Poetry underscore Says. Uh, you you uh, almost certainly already know about Alice, but I'll have links to her stuff in the show notes. She joins me today, and we talk about. A couple of things. We talk mostly about a short story by Emma Klein called White Noise that ran on The New Yorker, and then about this movie by Kitty Green that came out uh, a couple years ago called The Assistant, starring Julia Garner. Both very good, both worth a look, uh, and both, I would say there's not a lot of spoiling. They're not especially at risk of spoiling, so I wouldn't worry too much about that. But we have a, we have a good conversation, and Uh, Let's go to that conversation right now.
1: This came up because we were going back and forth about various things and you said, oh, this reminds me of Emma Klein's short story, White Noise, which you said was surprisingly humane. Yes. And then I read it because I was kind of fascinated to see what you meant by that. and. out it's so good it's It's so so good I'm so glad you sent it to me it's the day before Harvey Weinstein is sentenced he's at a friend's house it's just a blow by blow of his day and at one point he thinks that he sees the writer Don DeLillo next door in the interview with Emma Klein, she makes it clear that it's not him at all. Right. That's also part <laughs> it seems,
0: of his... by, the, by the end, it seems, yeah, clearly not, yeah.
1: Yeah, clearly not him. So it's just the things that happen to He's waiting, but it's written in the first person, and it's just a horrible day where he's just waiting. Like, I know that feeling so well of, like, you know that by this time tomorrow, everything's going to be resolved and different, but for, the now- for now, you just have to wait. You just have to wait it out and... We get to hear what it would be like inside the brain of somebody who's been, you know, accused of these, these horrible crimes and is about to get what's coming to him. And we get a sense of his, like, his ego and his fantasy and his sense of entitlement and just how pitiable he is. He's so fragile along with everything else.
0: <laughs> I, I knew the premise of the story before I... Actually, I think I'd listened to it um, before I read it uh, the first time, and I had no interest in it because I was assuming it was it was just sort of like wallowing in deserved misery, right? Like, I, mean, I was thinking like, I was, you know, putting myself in that situation, like, well, I've done all of these horrible things and I'm about to be, you know, like, and I'm being sort of publicly uh, and like brutally, because yeah, I mean, he got... Just for that first trial, because he then has another trial in California. Just the first trial, he got 23 years in prison. He's gonna die in prison, uh, and then yeah. he's got other other charges pending. Um, so he's being like brutally and deservedly and publicly punished. And I was just th- thought like it would just be this sort of black hole of misery, which I thought like I could understand wanting to conjure that in a sort of a vengeful way. But I thought like well, that sounds like it, that sounds like no fun to read but it's totally fun to read. It's so That's deliciously certain. fun. And, and part of, well, I guess what I meant by surprisingly humane is I thought like she nailed the, his perspective that even at the 11th hour, he's such an egomaniac and he's so self-satisfied and the rest of his life has, has served him, you know, like the world has served him so well that he has almost 100% certainty that everything's gonna work out just fine. Like he's he's pl- he's still looking out at the at the you know the the landscape as a master of the universe, and that Absolutely. and so it's it makes it so much more fun than if it, it's sort of like um, do you know the A Day in the Life of of Ivan Denisovich, the mm-hmm. little novella? I mean, I think no people have like very mixed feelings about Solzhenitsyn and I don't I don't know what those are, but just like just structure like or formally. It, it's a you know it's describing a horrible nightmarish day in a gulag but what's so brilliant about it is that it's a great day in the gulag like he like he writes it as like everything everything turned up my way today this was great and it's just it's so horrible that if it were written, in in a mournful tone, it would be unbearable. But because he's so excited that everything's working out great, and like, oh, I got a double serving of gruel. This is terrific. Like that's what makes it readable. And the, I think the same is here. Like he's so optimistic, so insanely optimistic that it's it's totally a pleasure to read.
1: yeah. He's optimistic, but there is a growing sense of dread throughout the day. But yeah. I think my favorite line in the whole thing is just after he gets up really early, His assistant, Gabe, gives him a glass of water or something or some coffee and he thinks to smile at him. He forces himself to smile at this assistant. And then the line after that is, okay, the day had barely started and already he was being kind, making moves. I just love that. It's like, everything's a calculation. And then the way the paragraphs kind of race along with his mind. After he's decided he has recognized Don DeLillo lives next door, he um, oh man, he just gets like completely convinced within the space of about five minutes that he's going to make a film of White Noise, mm-hmm. and he's going to which everybody has tried and dinner.
0: failed to do. It's you know for decades it's been this goal that nobody's been able to pull off, but. He sees a guy who kind of looks like Don DeLillo, and he's like, "This is what's happening."
1: Yeah, this is what's happening, and he's already like ten steps ahead.
0: Yeah, he's calculating, but he's also as because I, I underline that same bit about uh, Gabe and the glass of water, and there are these little lines throughout that are very similar, where he he like, constantly not only like has to consciously think to say please and thank you or smile, but he also congratulates himself every time. And so it, like, it's not just that he's calculating, it's also that he's totally childish. Like, he, yeah. he's like, look what a decent guy I am. I'm such a nice yeah. boss. Like he, you know, uh, which not to jump the gun, but it reminded me of the line in The um, in the Assistant where she gets on the phone with, basically the Harvey one, and his line to her is, uh, I'm not screaming at you. Am I screaming at you?
1: Yeah, I have this power, but I'm not wielding it. I'm just reminding you that it's here. Yeah.
0: Aren't you grateful? Yeah. yeah.
1: Actually, <laughs> uh, exactly. So, and then, and then he so, does. Yeah. There is,
0: there is like a little bit of like a, a Faustian creeping sense, um, where at the end of the day, he's the day. The day is like very. It's a very small day. He he gets up. He has some meals. He watches some episodes of Chernobyl in the screening room. It's a f- fabulous mansion belonging to some hedge fund guy, presumably, or some finance guy, and he he has this brief pseudo semi run-in with the fake Don DeLillo he briefly awkwardly visits with his his daughter and granddaughter and uh and then he has a he has like a little bit of a cons- consultation with the lawyers and then he has this medical treatment which sends him into kind of a uh it's some sort of powerful painkiller hip- hypnotic something and he 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 gets sent sort of out of his body and he loves it but then toward the end of the day as it wears off he's He um, things start to, his sense of confidence wanes a little bit. He's in the bath. And I think there's a, um, yeah, it says he he calls up this journalist who had always been good to him and had always done him favors. And she's just not having it anymore. She's done. And she knows that tomorrow he's going away forever. But he doesn't believe this. And he says, he has this sort of uh, harsh exchange with her. And then it says, he had never heard her sound like that. Her tone so careful clipped like she was talking to someone doomed a new and sudden panic was seizing him a freezing bite at the nape of his neck as if he'd been taken in the jaws of a terrible animal so you get this just that little bit of a sense of like his the the awareness that he's shoved so far away it barely creeps through at all but it is there and that's if the whole story were that you couldn't I couldn't bear to read it but but it's just, just there, right at the periphery, and then banished as he like delusionally goes outside through a blasting house alarm to go confront this stranger who is not Don DeLillo, yeah. uh, and he seems totally, <laughs> uh, you know, convinced again that everything's everything's fine. He says at one point he was trying to make contact, he like look at make eye contact with Don DeLillo in such a way that he would know DeLillo would know that he knew who he was, but also that he was also important. And he said, "Here, here we are." Out in the countryside, among the people, vibrating at a higher frequency. Which again, like he's, it is there's so so sharp a sense of not even class, but like caste in in this story and in and in the movie.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's such a great way to put it. Everybody else is just living fairly basic, normal lives, and he is, I guess, like a like some kind of god. Yeah. Every single one of his needs is met before he even realizes that he has it, and if it if they aren't met, it's somebody's problem immediately. I mean, he talks to people the
0: way the truly the way a a four year old does. I mean, not even a four year old tends to grow out of that a little bit, like like a three year old. I mean, that's really the level of of like ability to metabolize emotion that he's developed. Um, Yeah, completely. So, so the the reading it a second time, it is. It's such a it's such a, a fun, delicious read. The thought I, I had a little bit on the second go after just so being so surprised at in my enjoyment of it the first time was it, it rings so true. It just feels like, oh God, this makes so much sense as the way this mm-hmm. guy would think. So I guess my, double, my double-edged question is is it fun to read because it's just because it's congratulating our suspicion of how shitty and self-centered people like him are or like is it actually doing the work of imagining itself into his mind in a way that's that's more than just a sadistic fantasy and the follow up is uh does it matter <laughs> like <laughs> you know like is it is it important to do him justice either way I do really believe like it feels like this is how probably how he actually thinks. Um and in that way it feels like like a psychological achievement, but I don't know if that's just because I have so much like I have animosity toward him, right?
1: I think it does a lot more than just satisfy our need to see somebody like this squirm. I don't think I would enjoy it at all if that's what it were doing. I think for me the satisfying part is getting to see Yeah, how fragile he is, how terrified he is not because i want him to be terrified but because i guess when i and i didn't pay a great deal of attention to the harvey weinstein story because it's just too depressing and there's been you know oh God, yeah. layer upon layer of this unfolding in australian politics which i always haven't we so haven't paid any attention to there's, there's for has like same reason. Me,
0: me, me too ripples in australia
1: Oh god! I, yeah, absolutely. Okay, I'm I, I yeah. not. I've, yeah. I've,
0: I've, I also have been out of touch with the news for like a year at this point. But
1: very good decision. <laughs> yeah, but I I don't pay too much attention to it because it is depressing. But the question that constantly comes up for me anytime I sort of hear about a story like this is, what is going on inside that person's mind? Because I guess I don't yeah. believe in people as just straight up monsters. Right. Um and you can probably point to like exceptions to this rule but i don't think anybody is just pure evil and what this story does so beautifully is that yeah he's a child yeah. he's he's stunted and he's coddled and protected and privileged and given power well beyond what he should be able to wield over others and he is um he's gotten away with a little thing, and then a slightly bigger thing, and then it's just getting away with things is a matter of course for him. If I can read this paragraph about him on the private jet after he's been to India, he's remembering- Oh, God. This,
0: oh, my God. This yeah. is such a fucking great scene. <laughs> yeah. yeah so,
1: he's he's comforting himself thinking about examples of when women that he's wielded this power over are kind of- I guess what he's saying to himself is, I wasn't that bad And in this scene, they've just been to India and they've all been given mantras, but he sneezed at the wrong moment, (laughs) didn't hear his mantra. So he asks his assistant what her mantra was and Emma Klein writes, they both knew as soon as he asked the question that she would tell him her mantra. It was just a matter of how long it would take, what the moments between his demand and her capitulation would look like. In the end, it would be the same to him as any other moment of triumph. Only the in-between was different, made up, of different sequence of, made up of a different sequence of concessions, the particulars of each person. Some people resisted, some people did not. Some people went still, unmoving. Some people started laughing out of discomfort. He enjoyed it all, even these milder victories. It was like different flavours of ice cream. And ultimately, he was always sated, the other person breathing hard, squinting, shifting, some new shame in her face. Yeah, That's it? Like, Yeah.
0: It rang true that he would be, he would be, there's sort of three things that happen. He's he's self-justifying, right? Like, oh, well, this, this, it wasn't so bad, or she was, she had a coming, or as he does with the journalist, like, well, other people were in on it with me and they don't, they're not getting in trouble and they don't, they don't, doesn't seem to, didn't seem to bother them at the time. Um, and then he says, and then there's some where he just sort of, it's just an almost deliberate haze. Like he just, He's sort of trained himself not to be able to remember. And then as and this felt like a really nice sort of combination of, of these, where he he does clearly remember this one quite well, but he both justifies it a little bit to himself and he and he and he takes pleasure in it. And he almost congratulates himself for this ability that he has to convince people to do what he wants. That that's it's not even something to be ashamed of. It's it's part of what makes him cool and good and powerful to himself. Uh, I think there's a little bit of a lineage here to the, the Jeff Goldblum's, uh, and a then unknown Jeff Goldblum's one line in Annie Hall. He's, he's like a a Hollywood dude on the phone um, in a big scene. And it, the camera just stops on him for a moment. And he says, yeah, I, I forgot my mantra. And then years later in Curb Your Enthusiasm, there's a, there's a subplot where one character steals another character's mantra. And so I I, I suspect that some of those were at, rattling around in her head, but I have to say that her use of the same little gimmick, the kind of like comically forgotten and then stolen mantra, here it does it, it this is the best use of it in terms of like revealing character because it just feels as soon as the scene starts you sort of know where it's going but it's just so you feel like oh god of course of course it's this it's so beautiful i love that like really it's that's yeah i mean that's and that is part of it it like because he is like i think of like uh like renaissance and medieval writers who would write a lot about hell and devils and the damned and part of the reason you do that like dante writing about all those great classical figures or Christopher Marlowe writing about, you know, Mephistopheles, part of the reason you do that is that you by taking up a figure everybody already agrees is bad, you don't have to constantly apologize for taking it up. You just you can just show him doing his horrible business and everybody can have this sort of perverse ability to like plug themselves into the heroic outlook of the villain and it, like enjoy this other per- like because that's the thing is like It's a weird experience, but you sort of do you ride along with him throughout his his like horrible manipulation and abuse of people. And it's he's the hero. He's horrible. And it's obvious that he's horrible, even in the world of the story, but he is the hero. And so there is something from a pure storytelling you know, perspective that is just very skillfully executed, I think.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Absolutely. So you you then heard or read an interview with Emma Klein?
1: Yes, she just did a little short interview on The New Yorker about it. And I think, you know, she specifically says at the start, I'm not, not looking to fiction to reinforce political or social norms or to function as any kind of moral performance. And she quotes this really great paragraph from Zadie Smith, who talks about the strange thing is that the people we now cast into this place of non-interest, people we don't want to think about, were once the very people fiction was most curious about, the conflicted, the liars, the self-deceiving, the willfully blind, the abject, the unresolved, Um, those were once fiction's people. And it actually kind of made me think of um, a little bit some of the poems in your book, there is a poem that you have called "The Fell Swoop," which is about a guy who appears to have maybe murdered his whole family. <laughs>
0: yeah, a, there was a yeah. guy. There's a guy in Colorado who. It's not exactly like in the poem, but there's a guy in Colorado who murdered his wife, and then murdered his daughters because they witnessed it, and then he Jeez. constructed this elaborate fantasy explanation. Uh, and he seems to have done it basically, so he could like be a cool guy and like hang out with a younger woman and be like a he's like he was like that's the other thing is he was very handsome and so that of course made the news go crazy over it but he was like a he was like a handsome cool dude who did this like not not with like a great evil plan in mind but kind of for his own convenience well, but yeah yeah that's what i had in mind
1: yeah I, I thought it must have been based on some kind of real event but yeah um what Zadie smith is kind of saying here is like we we want to ignore these people. This is her argument, anyway. Like, there's she says there's this expression of pride in like I've I've had enough of. I just can't with you know these yeah. kind of people. Whereas a story like this, or a poem like the fell swoop, or I guess to an extent the assistant, they are switching back around and going, no, no, let's, let's look at this. Let's look at these people because the more we ignore them, the bigger and flatter they get. Like they just become like these 2d monsters. It's yeah. I don't know. I just want to keep unpacking this stuff forever and wondering like, okay, how, how do you, how do you live with yourself after you've done something like this and not in a like, Oh, how do you live with yourself? But like, how do you get up? How do you eat? How do you get through the day?
0: Is is that Sadie Smith paragraph from? She had a longish essay in the New York Review of Books called something like "In Defense of Fiction" a while ago. Is that what that was excerpted uh, yeah. from?
1: In Defense of Fiction, yeah, that's what. It yeah, is. that's a
0: great essay. just the whole, I should, some way. Maybe I'll do it. Yeah, that whole essay is terrific. She's she's, I yeah, my my memory, I, I, I haven't. It's been a while since I read it, but my memory of it was like I. I, I, it was hard to think about it because I just agreed with it so hard.
1: Yeah, amazing. No, I'd love to hear you do an episode on that. i am just, yeah. I mean, given that you're going to be teaching fiction, it'd be great to hear yeah,
0: your yeah, thoughts yeah. on all that stuff. All right. So yeah, uh, White Noise by Emma Klein in the uh, June something 2020 issue of The New Yorker and uh, I'll put links to everything, obviously. Um, and, and her, if you are if you would rather listen to it, her uh, reading of it on the, the podcast is, is excellent as well. So you you had recommended this movie, The Assistant.
1: I think it's absolutely fantastic. It is kind of the same story from a different angle. It's a day in the life of an assistant to um, the head of a film production company. It's from her waking up to going through every moment of her day, end of the day, and to introduce it properly, I want to read you this Google review, this one-star Google review. And It, so so director it, it,
0: is, it, it came out in 2019, and it's uh, written and directed by Kitty Green. Kitty Green. Yeah. The star is well, Julia Gardner.
1: So this review says, sorry, Kitty, terrible movie on so many levels. <laughs> hey, how about a female boss verbally abusing her female admin slash assistant? Female bosses, which feel threatened by their own female assistants because they might actually be smarter, clever, and have better inputs, therefore bullying them back as a result. Women don't always pick women up. Why don't we make movies about that? Instead of the constant male-to-female me-too BS. There are plenty of these cases, including male-to-male abuse or female abusing men. Where are those movies? <laughs> yeah, it feels it like, so like
0: Google fun. review as... Like, psychoanalysis.
1: One of the things that I think I have to concede to you is that poetry will never get the kind of vitriolic film bro reviews that, that happen in the film world. Like, the way that people will just jump online and just fucking heap shit on a movie. And the line is always like, I mean, it was obvious how you should have done it. And right. I could have done it better. It's just amazing. <laughs> like they're just. But no, I don't want to give that review any more airtime than it deserves. It. But it. I just struck me that it has a one point eight out of five review on um, rating on Google reviews. But it does have ninety eight percent on Rotten Tomatoes. So it just kind of shows like, you know. Oh, the that's the overall over here and score. Send their thing.
0: Like that's the cumulative yeah. score on Google.
1: Yeah, yeah one point eight. Yeah. Huh, huh. Well, I can see how if you weren't interested in looking at this power dynamic, you would find this film boring and flat and slow, but I Ooh. loved yeah. every minute of it and re-watching it. I was just like, oh my God, this is such a fucking achievement. Yeah. I'm on board. What did you think?
0: It reminded me in, only in this respect of a completely different movie that people also hate, uh, that I think is very good, called "Us." That was the Jordan Peele's follow-up to "Get Out."
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But in that, it's it's clear that every shot and every scene is constructed, you know, to the pixel. It's all mm-hmm. ex- extremely mm-hmm. deliberately put together. And the, I think the other reason that somebody might not love this movie, like I think, I think like Joanna, who certainly, you know, would have great sympathy for the main character. Uh, and antipathy toward her boss, I think she would also hate this movie because of the form. Like I think if you expect a certain kind of narrative form, this is not going to provide satisfaction to that. like it is it is mm-hmm. I mean, it is just a very formally unusual m- movie in that there's there's almost just one scene that I would call like an actual scene that, that there's there's one sit down start to finish. Dramatically motivated conversation between the Julia Garner character and an HR exec played by uh, Matthew McFadgin. Matthew McFadgin and uh, Dagmara Dominic, both from Succession. Uh, but like that's that that one scene with the HR guy. That's sort of the only proper traditional scene. Almost everything else is she's alone. She's on the phone with somebody. There are a couple little. Other assistant dudes in the room with her that she has some little exchanges with but mostly it's an, it's a very solitary movie that is in which the important action or the you know what what we are led to believe it's sort of in worldly terms the important action is happening just off uh so that from the perspective of like the from the company's perspective nothing significant is happening it is i do think that they're you know the 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 one of the um, refrains of like playwriting classes is that you you don't want to write about the second most important life day in the life of your character, right? The way I always translate it, it's a little different. I translate that to like the Hanukkah um, or the, not the Hanukkah, the Seder uh, question why is this night different from every other night? Like it, it should happen, it should be important that it happens today. Right. It's this is why is it today? And it, I do think by the end there is a specific reason that it's this particular day, which takes place five weeks into her job, working for this utterly monstrous Harvey Weinstein-like guy who is never on screen. Like I think I don't think we even ever see like the back of his head. We we hear him a little bit on the phone, and that's it. Yeah, um, and he doesn't
1: have a name. He's just referred to as he. Right. He. The whole film. Yeah.
0: Mm. Yeah. But it, it is. I mean, it seems pr- pretty clearly to be. Weinstein and, and probably like a Weinstein who's sort of still like very much in his prime, because as yeah. some people as some people observed, like by the time things really came out and and were started taking him down, his his you know his time had waned a little. bit. Right? he he was not quite on top in the way he once was, and that's part of the reason he was able to he could be toppled. This feels like a Harvey Weinstein. Very much in his heyday, in, in full command.
1: Yeah, yep. drivers, chefs, personal trainers. He's got three assistants, yeah. all of whom he abuses, but he abuses his female assistant in a in a very particular way. She does some very nasty work for him. And yeah, I, as I was watching this, I was thinking like, I was thinking about one of the first bosses I had and just like the the similarities between them. Have you ever had <laughs> a boss like this?
0: No, not like that. No, I mean, it seemed like a level of monstrosity that you have to be powerful enough even to be that wicked, right? Like a small time store boss can't be as much of a shit as this guy can just because of his reach, it seems like, and the, the scale, the, thing, yeah, you know, the stakes of his work. Yeah. yeah well, what I mean, you, 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 you had experiences that were at least parallel to.
1: Yeah. When I was working for this particular guy, I was sort of a freelancer for him. He's sort of, the way he run the company was that everybody was freelance. And actually, yeah, I've just been reminded of something because the way this film treats beauty is really interesting to me. Julia Garner is obviously gorgeous. (laughs) But But she's treated like
0: a plain Jane. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, you're not his type.
1: Right. And then the way that she reacts in these little micro facial expressions when- other women who are more traditionally gorgeous come on to the scene is really, really fascinating to me. Yeah. And so I I worked with this guy doing just shitty blog post writing for a couple of years. And I did it because I had total freedom. Like I could kind of, I was able to do it at home and a lot of extra time to do other things. Um, But he was a total egomaniac, and he was in this strange position in his professional life where he had been extremely successful as a dot-com guy, he, right place, right time guy, and his company had been acquired by Rupert Murdoch, but pretty soon after that, Murdoch had fired him. And when I came to work for him, he was sort of in these like waning days of empire scrambling to hold on to the little bits of influence and money that he had and yeah I mean I worked like pretty hard for him and he seemed to sort of mostly ignore me which I was grateful for but there was a time when we did work in the office with him and I remember him you know yelling and and using incredibly inappropriate language and talking about you know just that nobody would want to hear and uh towards the end of my time I I ended up with a colleague who was just indescribably beautiful. She was just so gorgeous and it was really fascinating to watch the difference in the way that he would kind of come up to her and like have these little exchanges that were nothing like anything he'd ever said to me before. I'm not saying this is like oh poor me or whatever. It's just it was it was just interesting. You know? yeah, yeah. It was just so really he, interesting. He, he,
0: he had a different interest in her.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I also got the sense being friends with her and kind of being around when that was happening was that this was just her experience of the world. You know, she was mm. just that kind of, you know, tall, blonde. She was actually English, but like she sort of looked like one of those Bondi Beach Australian goddesses, you know. Yeah. So anyway, that was really fascinating. And I guess I'm grateful they got the chance to work for, for such a horrible guy because... <laughs> I just learned, you know, what you can end up putting up with without really meaning to.
0: Yeah. I w- no, I mean, the, the beauty thing was interesting because it felt like, I mean, it felt very double-edged and that Julia Garner gets overlooked and gets uh, ignored and sort of isn't given certain, isn't, you know, certain courtesies are not extended to her that are extended to these uh, women or, or in some cases, I mean, like maybe 18, like very young girls. On the other hand, it felt a little bit like the Little Red Riding Hood thing, like, Oh, wow. She got put up in the nice hotel and she got this job with no effort and she just waltzed in and she's so beautiful. But also, like, but she's then he goes to the hotel and he's there with her for a while and who knows what. Like,
1: yeah, she's a target. Yeah.
0: Yeah. There's a sense that like Julia Garner is not going to be, she's going to have a harder time in certain cases and to a certain extent. But there are also things that will never happen to her that get, that you know get perpetrated upon these these other women, and even like the driver says a thing that he's like, oh, he told me you're very smart, and and like the weird, the boss, like, cruelly demands this apology in this really weird way, uh, and then immediately replies in a sort of ingratiating way, saying, oh, you're you're very good. I'm I'm you know I'm hard on you because I want you to be great, and you, you do get the sense that like she's not. He he isn't nice to her the way he's nice to the prettier girls or you know but he but it's like it's possible at some point for him to think of her as a human being whereas those other <laughs> women will always just be like snacks to him uh, is is the that's sort that's of the impression I got it. and it's like and so so I have my own theory about why it's this day like there, there are a lot of movies you could make using a lot of the conventions or perspectives that they used in this movie but that they made this one in particular about this story. Mm.
1: Well, this movie does one of my favorite things, which is to show a lack of change or progression and just inevitable kind of cycling through a situation. So this is the day that she decides, I'm going to go to HR. I think it's significant that she hasn't slept well. She barely eats. She's been working through the weekend. This is the day where she reaches a breaking point. But the scene with Matthew McFadden shows it doesn't mean anything. Yeah. She could get to this breaking point 10 times. Nothing is going to change. She either plays by the rules and stays in the company or she leaves. Um, she just doesn't have enough power to take this guy down. And I, I like a film or a story or a poem that shows uh, just a... Kind of a bold reflection of reality in that way. I don't really want there to be redemption in a story like this. I just, I just want to see it for what it is.
0: Yeah. So the, you're right. This is this is the day she she makes the move to go report her <laughs> like satanic, but like un- unbelievably abusive, horrible boss to HR, who's who could be reported to HR for. I mean, when she walks in, it's like. I almost wasn't sure what she was going to report him for. <laughs> you, could just, you could spend all day listing things that he's been doing. So yeah, this is the day she, she, she breaks, she goes to HR, she reports him. Uh, I don't think she's going to report him again. I, I think you, know, you said she yeah. could reach the breaking point 10 times, and you're right. Like the, the, the structure is in place. The HR guy like, reports her so fast that by the time she gets back to her office, everybody already knows that she just replied. Everybody, everybody knows like the boss knows yeah. the other assistants know and they like they've already digested it and responded to it. So the, yeah the system is very much in place to protect this guy and part of what I loved about that scene where she goes to the HR guy is that she does a bad job. Like she's not you know my heart goes out to her and and like she's not to blame for anything but she's she's not at all eloquent. She, like she doesn't she kind of she presents it in the wrong way, where it seems like she's complaining about the girl, and it, you feel like, oh no, no, that's not what you say, and it, like, but of course, that's exactly how things really go. Like, pe- like, yeah. of course, like an actual good HR person listens and then like draws out more, and like because people are flustered, they're nervous, they don't know how to present it, and she's she's flustered, and he's he is very skillful at completely turning her around, and he's he's you know his real job is to shut this kind of thing down. And the thought I had, at, you know, because he she goes back to her office after having been totally, totally shut down, he, where he he even, you know, I think very tellingly, he kind of holds up this, this legal pad where he's written the like five words of her complaint, which he's presented and, and regurgitated to her in especially incoherent fashion. And he says, well, w- would you like me to file this? And, you know, I guess you want to throw away your whole career for this? Do you think this is going to, what is it exactly that you're complaining about? And he gets her to say, no, don't file it. He yeah. gets her, you know, it's not even that he buries the complaint. He gets her to rescind the complaint. And then she goes back to her office and, and her boss, you know, rips her new asshole and makes her, you know, write a, a groveling apology to him. The thought I had at the time was, well, why doesn't he just fire her? But I think, I think it's actually really, it makes perfect sense that he doesn't fire her because he and the HR guy and. To some extent, all the people there, they know it's bad. And what they need is not people who have no understanding of it. They need people who do understand and have decided to compromise themselves, have yeah, decided to complicit. give in. Like, he's, mm. It's important to him that he not just like not ever get friction from her, but that he actually break her. Because then he's, then he's very ingratiating. And then he sort of says like, well, you're, you're my chosen one. I believe in you. In a way that you know, bring you know, it's like is, is clearly designed to to you know stimulate gratitude and and hope from her, and, and probably you know, if she sticks with it, he, he very well may groom her into being you know an an exec of some kind. She may end up being very successful there, but it's this is sort of the moment when she might have really defied him, and as is true for all of us, when that moment or almost all of us when that moment comes, she's not ready. And she doesn't do a great job, and it and it kind of misfires. And because of the system she's inside of, it's totally smothered. And she, I don't, I, I would say after that movie, I think she never goes to HR again. Is my my expectation?
1: Yeah, I, think, I think you're probably right. Yeah, yeah, she's complicit by that point. She's totally compromised.
0: But I also um, don't really blame her. Like, I don't, I don't really see the, the 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 lack of change. I see is that I don't, I don't know that there. I'm not really sure what the alternative was going to be. I mean, she could have gotten herself fired. I think that would have been a difference. I don't know that there's anything she can do to change the larger situation.
1: Yeah, and that's why I love it. Is because it's just <laughs> that's this is what it is. This is what it is. It's just an accurate reflection of how that power dynamic works. I think it's brilliant. Yeah. yeah. Oh
0: yeah, yeah. No, I mean it's it's so so skillful. You made. I will say it. Yeah. I mean it's not a popcorn flick.
1: No, I I felt bad asking you to watch it. I was like, no, oh, no, no, he doesn't I, need this in I, his life.
0: <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, I I like watching weird, weird. Or I mean, I, I guess you. Yeah, I mean, I'd say it's 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 sort of an art house movie. I mean, it, it is very socially and politically conscious, and I think that's maybe some of what. Like, if this movie were made about a different topic or that or a topic that didn't have such a a, a current political charge to it, I think people would have felt more benignly, like they would have felt more like, oh, it's just an art movie. but it's, yeah, it has a political charge to it because of the time. and it wouldn't. I mean, also, it's probably a movie that couldn't really have been made before me too. not not because it wouldn't have been financed, but because it wouldn't land the same way. Like if we didn't have, I mean, it, it does a pretty good job of of implying what's happening off stage. but I think, Probably you do need to have a little bit of the greater context in order for it to hit as hard as it does. As yeah, you know, yeah, impression.
1: we've got the reference points. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
0: But no, no, it's a, it's, a, um, it's a terrific movie. And just, I mean, just like really formally interesting as a, as a way of storytelling. Because it doesn't, I mean, I'm sure if you broke it down, you could find like the Sid Field 3X structure to it. But it is, it has a very, you know, you don't see a lot of movies that have like a really unusual f- formal structure. And this one does. Mm. Uh, so yeah well 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 done and julia garner's always, always great she is um she i feel like she's this sort of like this great hybrid category of like the the like leading lady character actor where yeah, she yeah. she often plays sort of odd little squirrely characters but she also has this clearly i mean she can carry a movie um and i think maybe the most prominent role she she was in the americans probably the most prominent role she's had is on Ozark. Uh, yeah, but yeah, thank you for recommending it.
1: Definitely, definitely. There mm-hmm. was, um, I wanted to ask you something just to yeah. to end with, but please feel free to not no, answer am no, 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 no. good. You're cut right. it out, because I kind of want to bring it back to the real world, mm-hmm. and I guess I know what the Me Too conversation looks like between women working in poetry, what I'm really interested in, and I keep trying to our friends this and They won't tell me. What does the conversation look like between men? In poetry? Yeah.
0: You think? I want Yeah, like that's a good. That's a good question to be as candid as possible about. Let me try to think about the conversations I've had. I mean, I think there is no question it is uh, handled less reverently when it's just men in the room, right? Because I mean, honestly, because you know, for better or worse, we, you know, people aren't worried about hurting each other's feelings. But just something like like just if you're talking about me too, which of course, as with like Black Lives Matter, it's like this this term that's just ballooned in this way that it it means so much to so many people in so many different ways that bringing it up is almost a way of like bringing up. Saying, like, I don't know what this will mean to you, but let me throw it into the room now. So I think if you're in a room with a woman talking about it, there's just much more of a. I mean, maybe this shouldn't be the case. Maybe we should be equally sensitive to everybody. But like, for me, and I think for the men I know, you're way more aware that like you could be setting somebody off. You could be, you know, both sort of selfishly you know in a mercenary way you could be like getting yourself in trouble but i think also just in a more human way like you don't know what toes you could be stepping on whereas between men it, it's possible to be uh more casual about it i think i think probably it's not that i think other than that tone and the kind of ease of conversation because again i i don't know a very many conversations i've had about poetry me too stuff but other than like tone and context the content of the conversation is not that different than than like private conversations with women i think the way people talk in a public sphere is, is a whole other question because you just like everything's on the record and god knows what anything like people are afraid i mean i think like one of the any conversation involving the word cancel culture has gotten to be so fucking hysterical in all directions that it's like just like it becomes impossible to say anything intelligent about it. Uh, One thing that I do think I have observed, and it may be that people are wrong to do this, but when people worry about cancel culture, wrongly or not, they're not necessarily Changing their behavior because they will get fired as a result of something they say in public. But they are changing their behavior because they're afraid or paranoid or resentful or something. So it's as much, I think, a question of perception. I mean, I certainly know a lot of men who are also super paranoid about saying something offensive about race, about sex, about, you know, so I think, and in some cases, it's not paranoia if they're really out to get you. Like, I think there are people who, are like, yeah, I'm glad you don't say that. <laughs> I'm like, that would be horrible. <laughs> but I think, I mean, like, in more, more often, it's it's probably excessive caution. And I think it's you know, it's it's they may believe that like somebody's out to cancel them. And like, well, that's not going to happen. But I, you know, okay, all right. But no, like, I think like the candid conversations I've had with women not in public about it tend to have a lot of the same nuances, which is like, wow, there were some fucked up guys doing shit that like, the biggest difference is like, I guess women knew about all of this and like knew that then like, there were certainly some, some dimensions of awfulness among some, especially like powerful men. I did not know that shit was going on. Like, you know, holy shit. And I think, you know, in the in, in the entertainment industry, there's some like open secrets and things, but like, like Matt Lauer stuff like that, I didn't, the, the uh, Charlie Rose stuff, even like he was like less abusive. He would just like walk around naked around his female employees, which is fucking insane. Like I, I don't, it didn't. Yeah. That was like news to me. And I think it was news to most of the men I knew. So like, to the extent to which, like, I guess women were going through some shit we didn't know about, like, that's fucked up. Holy shit. And then also, as with most private conversations I've had with women, their observations, like, yeah, like, it didn't seem like Aziz Ansari was a rapist. Like, it seems like there were some, like, weird overreactions and there's some, like, lumping in of one thing with another thing that are, like, that's not equivalent. But I also think, like, like I hear women say that in public, I th- you know, so. I think mostly, it's probably a difference of tone and ease. Mm
1: -hmm. You're
0: like, you're you're just not, I mean, in a way it's, oh man, I was going to make a really bad analogy. (laughs) Shit. (laughs) Okay. What I was going to say, which I should not say, which is not appropriate because it's not actually an accurate analogy, (laughs) what I was going to say is it's the way you can talk about Santa Claus when there's not a kid in the room. That's obviously not, (laughs) obviously. (laughs) (laughs) there's a difference because because me too predators do actually exist (laughs) it's not the same thing but I think there's just an ease of like yeah you're just not as worried about stepping on somebody's toes I think that's the big difference
1: well thank you for answering that it's super interesting yeah yeah I guess I just ask because my assumption is that while between women there is kind of shorthand and kind of a you know there's there's a look that you'll you'll include when you're sort of being like is he he sent me this weird email like is he oh, okay you know that that kind of right, like that what right. what is the whisper network mm. and i guess i wonder between men if there's any sense of like oh god like like a reassessment in a way in light of all this um of the the conversation, like, oh, have I done stuff that I didn't realize at the time was?
0: Oh yeah, no, I think. I mean, I power. think that's yeah. yeah. I think that I think that's totally the case. I think there's definitely a reassessment. I think there's a reassessment of like a, a past behavior. You know, uh, I will say that, and I don't think this is an, an evil peculiar to men. But I think, except in the case of like a a, a more personal. Encounter like if it's you know, I mean, this is why people talk about you know, I'm the father of daughters, I'm the husband of a wife. I think, like, you know, people's first impulse is self defense. So, I think the first impulse that most of the men I know have in these conversations is, Am I gonna get strung up because of some ambiguous thing from way back when? But I think there is definitely a reassessment, and even when people Get upset about that, right? And I've certainly had that thought as well. It's like, um, I don't, I don't, <laughs> I don't think there's anything even really comparable. But it certainly makes you like rethink every fucking conversation and every past relationship and every possible ambiguity. I think it, there's a selfish motivation for that, which is I don't want to get in trouble. But I think unless you're a psychopath, then there's like further meditation on it, like whether or not. Mm-hmm. Think, I mean, things like this didn't happen because of me too. This happened because I was living in Baltimore. But like I had to think about walking on the sidewalk and women being around and like a woman dropped a thing and I called out to her to try to give it back. And it was this like whole weird exercise to try to like go across the street to call out to her, to offer the thing to, you know, which like it's pretty fucking reasonable on her part, you know, I'm some big bearded guy. And I, trying to like change how I'm walking so that I don't like end up walking up behind some woman in the dark or something, you know? So I think, yeah, there's some, there's some reassessment of like, oh, is there real guilt? There's also like, oh, this could come across in this way. Or like, I need to be more careful. I think there's also like, definitely I've heard men complain about, uh, I mean, I'll say like most of the men I've heard complain about the difficulty of flirting or having sex now in this in this age of you know no ambiguity and ultra enthusiastic consent like most of the men I've heard complaining about that they're already fucking married so I feel like well what's it to you like what are you worried about <laughs> like the kid like kids are kids do their own shit and figure their own shit out. I don't know. Like I'm glad I'm not 20 but like I'm glad I'm not 20 for a bunch of reasons. You know I'd like I don't I don't yeah I wouldn't want to be back in that part of my life. Yeah uh, God
1: promise me we'll never have to do that again.
0: I can't. I think there's actually a very good chance we will. God damn it. Like, I think from like a, I think the good news is we won't know it. I think time, like, I think time is probably an illusion. Like we're probably stuck there forever is my, is kind of, so part of us will always be. In that fucking situation, where like not only do you have to go through all that awkward shit again and and hate yourself in that particular way, but like you also won't have the advantage of realizing how gloriously young your body is. So yeah, it's <laughs> it's fucked. But no, I, uh, yeah, I think I think like there's certainly some like gripey, gripe-y male conversations about I don't want to you know I want to be super careful about sending this email or saying this thing or just you know, and some of that's good, and some of that's shitty and some of it's like when women get together they gripe about men and some of that's unfair and when black people get together they gripe about white people and like that some of that's unfair but also like whatever it's fine people are human it's fine when toddlers (laughs) get together they gripe about the parents making them go to bed like fine it's fine people gripe that was my conversation with alice allen you can find alice as always on the podcast poetry says and on twitter at poetry underscore says thank you as always for listening you can reach me at sleerickets at gmail.com and with any luck i will be speaking to you again very soon until then